Right, well, we're going to look at Psalm 2 this evening, the whole of it. All been well? Uh, we're living at, a, living at a time when there is great antagonism in our own country now toward the living and true God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's revealing itself in people's attitude towards Christians. There seems to be a concerted effort these days to denounce Christian thinking on any subject and to oppose Christians who seek to live according to God's revealed word and who on any pretext will accuse Christians of hate crimes or being homophobic, as they call it, for speaking out against sexual immorality and of being intolerant in defending Christian principles or witnessing to Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Saviour. One uh, very clear example I found a few weeks ago of a lady who was gaining an interest in reading the Bible and she was so excited about it, she told, I think, some of her friends and some of her uh, relatives, and they were aghast. And they were really uh, telling her not to do it. Not a good book to read. That's the sort of world we seem to be living in these days in our own country. Now, of course, all this should not take us by surprise. We should not be astonished that there is such hatred and opposition to God, his laws, and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because right, as you know, right from the, the beginning, our first parents were warned by the devil in the form of that wily snake not to believe God, not to listen to what God said and to think for themselves. And so they rebelled against God and his way of living and behaving. From beginning to end, the, the whole Bible constantly brings to our attention the rebellion and hostility toward God by human beings. And we have it presented to us here very vividly in the opening lines of Psalm 2. So there's nothing new about this modern rejection of God and the gospel. The awful tragedy is, of course, that in rejecting uh, the living and true God and the good news concerning his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the world of sinful human beings is rejecting the very thing that can really help them. In fact, the only one who can actually save them from the terrible mess they are in and the awful doom that awaits them. Now, the psalm is a great statement of faith and it's a powerful proclamation of hope for a rebellious world opposed to God. The psalm has four sections of almost equal length. So you see I've got uh, four points tonight instead of three. Uh, in uh, verses 1 to 3, we have the rebellion of the nations. In verses 4 to 6, 
we have the Lord's response. In verses 7 to 9, we've got the Lord's decree. And finally, in uh, verses 10 to 12, we've got the gospel call and the final warning. Now, it's uh, well constructed, as all these psalms are. The first and the last sections, you see, uh, balance one another because uh, they both refer to the national representatives. In the first section, they voice their opposition to God and his king. And in the final section, they're urged to submit and to serve God and his king. And then the two inner sections introduce us to God's king. Uh, in the first, we're, uh, we've got uh, the Lord's special king there mentioned in verses 4 to 6. And then in verses 79, this special king announces God's promise about his universal rule. Now, before we actually attempt uh, a brief uh, survey of this psalm, uh, there's one important point to remember. And it's this, that the creator God is the supreme ruler over all. I want you to remember that. Some of the later Psalms emphasize this. The Lord reigns. You get them in Psalms 90 to 100 there very often. Do remember there has never been a time when God has not ruled over everything that he has created. Nothing has ever been outside his dominion or his control. Even the devil, as Martin Luther put it, even the devil is God's devil. In other words, you see, there's no idea of dualism in reality. By that I mean bad and good vying for supremacy. God reigns, full stop. But of course... Rebellion has broken out in God's universe. But it's all in the plan. Rebellion has broken out in God's universe, first by the devil and his associate spirits, and then by humans influenced by the devil. So that, as Jesus could say, this world of humans is under the influence of this devilish prince. There are a few passages we could look at at that, but the devil has usurped power over this created world and over humans. So the devil does have influence. The devil does have power over the kingdoms of this world, which is why he could tempt Jesus. He couldn't have tempted him otherwise if he, could, if he couldn't say all these I will give you, all these kingdoms I'll give you if you only just fall down and worship me. Jesus didn't say 
Huh, you don't, uh, you don't have any role. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And the devil's ugly influences are so obvious, of course, in our own country today, never mind anywhere else, but all over the world. There are wars and violence uh, and open, also open persecution of Christians by state authorities in so many countries. So, given that, God is the supreme ruler. Always has been, always will be. So now we come to the first point, verses 1 to 3, worldwide rebellion. Here in these first three verses, we have this international opposition to God described. The rebellious, they know there is a God, but as Paul reminds us, they deliberately suppress the truth. They do, they do this by conspiring together to overthrow all godly restraints and to live as if there were no God to whom they will have to give an account. Now the way the psalm opens is interesting. It's in the form of a question, isn't it? Why do the nations rage? It's what is called a rhetorical question. It's not expecting an answer from us. No, it's actually an expression of astonishment that these nations and their representatives are so stupid to have such futile thoughts and plans and are trying their best to rid themselves of all divine influences and restraints that are meant for their good. So you see, it speaks here of um, wanting to be burst free of their bonds and to be cast, to have their cords cast from us. All the restraints that God in his goodness places upon us for our good, they want to cast off. They think they'll be better off without any constraints, free for all. And God in his judgment sometimes allows that, doesn't he? Gives them over, as it says in Romans 1, gives them over. Well, we're seeing something of it in our own country, never mind well, the West generally, aren't we? Being God giving people over to their sinful desires. And what is it bringing us? Any, any, good, any more good and any more happiness? Not a bit of it. Dear me, what a sad world and what a sad state our own nation is in with so many people. They don't know who they are, what bodies they're in. Oh, dear me, they... They're in such a mess, and so they're in a psychological mess as well, as uh, in, very often in, in physical messes, as well as spiritual, of course, and social messes. So there we are, bonds and cords, symbols of subjection. The world leaders wish to break free from God's rule and uh, uh, his anointed king. Want to be free to do things our way, my way, it's amazing. I've been to a number of funerals over this past two or three years. It's amazing. I suppose it's my age as well. Uh, more people are dying than I knew. <laughs> but how sad that so many 
especially in the crematorium that if they ha have a, a, a service there. Sinatra's song has often become the, 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 the theme tune or, or, or song in the, in the crematorium. I did it my way. That really sums it up, doesn't it? Human beings in their opposition to God. They want to do it their own way. People think that by throwing off the constraints that God imposes upon us for our good, they can live better, uh, do better, and enjoy a carefree existence. Freedom from the true and the living God, the God of the Bible, that's what people call for. And you know, this rebellion, of course, it reached a peak when Jesus was crucified. In Acts chapter 4 makes that very clear. The fulfillment of this uprising was when Jew and Gentile clamored together to put God's anointed one, Jesus, to death. The Gospels describe, don't they, how they clubbed together to get rid of the Lord of glory. They hated him so much. And, uh, I mean, this is where you see the, the utter sinfulness of the human heart that they could do this to the pure and holy Son of God who had done so much good in their communities, shown so much compassion toward needy people, and had spoken such gracious words. Away with him, they said, away with him. The crucifixion of Jesus was the great realization then of this text. But it also provides the pattern for all the reaction to God and his people throughout the ages. And this is why the apostles used this prayer in uh, their prayer, uh, used this psalm in their prayer in Acts chapter 4, when uh, they'd been released from the Jewish authorities and told not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And so they went back to their own uh, uh, church and um, told them uh, what had happened to them and uh, what had, they'd been told not to do anymore. And so they gathered together to pray. And they used this psalm in their prayer in Acts chapter 4. And what did they pray for? They didn't pray to have a good time and to be free of persecution. All they prayed for was boldness, that they may carry on. Boldness to carry on preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so, we can expect the same opposition and trouble today. They saw the crucifixion as the ultimate uh, uh, fulfillment of this prophecy but they also saw it as a pattern in their situation and we can therefore take it as a pattern in our situations today but remember that this antagonism toward God and his truth is in us all by nature let's not forget that let's not just think of oh it's all those people out there because this antagonism is in us all by nature. Until there's a change of heart, until there's that new uh, birth from above that we were talking this morning, 
This rebellion against God is true of us all, whether we are religious or irreligious. Paul describes us in our sinful and regenerate state in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, and he puts himself in it as well. You remember, he starts off to the Gentiles, you once walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, among whom also we all, we, we all, we, Jew and Gentile, we all had our converse, conduct uh, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature, children of wrath, just as the others. So whether they've got a Bible or without a Bible, their, their natures were the same, you see. That's what we are like. Uh, it's natural then for us humans in our hatred of God and his anointed son Jesus Christ to hate those who belong to God as well uh, and uh, hate those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and want to follow him. They will hate true Christians and persecute them. We can expect it. Do not be surprised by it. And I'm saying this now because I think things will go, get worse before they get better, that's for sure. Now, the second point is this. We've just seen world rebellion in verses 1 to 3, but let's look now at verses 4 to 6, the Lord's response. What's God's reaction? The one who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. It's descriptive of the utter stupidity of all this useless scheming and plotting against God. When the opposition is happening to individual Christians and churches throughout our world, the experience, of course, can be very terrifying and uh, intimidating. Uh, and there is always the temptation to compromise and to tarnish our Christian profession in order to have a quiet life. But let's remember how God views the hostility and the rebellious activity. Here are these puny humans living on this little earth, the God of the whole universe overall. And uh, we're trying to fight against this God who owns all things, the supreme ruler of the universe. It's like a little child, you know, there he is with his dad or his mom, if it comes to that. And he, he's kicking and trying to be free of his dad and mom and wants to go his own way. And he goes, he gets free and thinks he's got the freedom. And of course, all, all the parent has to do is to grab him by his neck and pull him back. That's the kind of thing here. What a, what a laughable situation, trying to break free of, of God, the living God. It's madness. From God's vantage point, it's ludicrous. Insane. But God doesn't just ridicule such folly. He has something to say to disturb his rebellious creatures. In his righteous anger and deep displeasure, it says here that he speaks to distress the rebels. 
But it's not actually a word of punishment, is it? It's a, it's a word of declaration, declaration of purpose concerning his anointed ruler, the Messiah. This is what he's purposed. This is his declaration. You see, this is the king, the sovereign lord. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, you might think on first reading, well, that doesn't seem to be much of a threat to these rebels or a comfort to God's oppressed people. Now, a little bit of background. We must remember the earthly hell of Zion uh, was where we, was the was the hill that David captured uh, and made his home, his capital, uh, and uh, and then they all came together. All the Lord, all God's people, all the all Israelites came together and. Uh, they acknowledged him king there. All right? That's, that's the background. But of course, uh, in the Bible, it's symbolic. Uh, it's symbolic of the heavenly cities. Uh, earthly Zion is symbolic of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And it's symbolic of the whole company of God's people from all the nations of the world, saved by Jesus, the anointed king, messianic ruler of David's line. God is pointing to his son who became Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, who is the king and savior of his people, head of this spiritual city-state. And so there's wonderful comfort and assurance for all God's people who are suffering persecution and ill-treatment at the hands of local and national governments or from even neighbours and relatives. Remember Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and where he is now. Uh, you could say that this declaration is saying, I win. I have the last word. And it's all through my son, who is the appointed uh, uh, Messiah, the anointed king. Well, okay. Well, how is Jesus, the Messiah, a threat to these opponents of God and of his Christ? How can this statement uh, mean so much to be a comfort to God's people and uh, not just a threat, but really the end of all the opposition? Well, the rest of the psalm tells us, explains the declaration. So the third point, seven to nine, the Lord's anointed speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, 
You are my son today, I, begotten you. I have begotten you, and so on. So here is the Messiah now speaking. Here is King Jesus speaking, the one referred to in verse 2 as the Lord's anointed. Jesus, it's Jesus who is the Messiah. And he announces God's decree, God's ruling, God's proclamation. Now, by royal decree, it was announced that Wrexham was to be a city. Royal decree. That's what we've got here, but uh, something much better than <laughs> Wrexham being a city. Uh, here we have the royal proclamation from the King of Kings about his Messiah. And it is actually broadcast by the Messiah himself about God's kingdom or rule on earth where the devil uh, seems to think he's got it all in his own hands. Now you notice first that the Messiah announces that the Lord God's decree concerns himself. It is made to his Messiah. So it's to Jesus, his anointed one. And it speaks of his legal position. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a formal declaration, if you like, of his coronation, his installation as king. The background again is what uh, was said by God to the kings of Israel. There was to be a special bond between God and David and all the kings descended from David. God made a special covenant with them and God promised. You read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. God promised to be a father to the king and the king would be God's son. So there's that father-son relationship, close bond. So the statement today, I've begotten you, is a way of saying, I have now become your father. It's not speaking about the king's birth, but of his adoption, if you like, as king. Uh, at his coronation, if you like. Remember, um, the Queen, of course, when uh, uh, King George VI died in the February uh, 1952, well, the Queen immediately became Queen. But she wasn't crowned until the following year, was she? Uh, and uh, that's when she was installed and when they all cried, God save the Queen. I remember it very well. I was 10 years old. I went next door to watch the television, which I'd never seen before. So there we are. Uh, now then, that's a similar thing here. Uh, it's in this sense that the, this verse is quoted by Paul in Acts chapter 13. 
and verses 33 and 34. In declaring the good news about Jesus in Asia Minor, in Pisidian Antioch, Paul states that God has fulfilled his promises made to the Old Testament people of God by raising Jesus from the dead. And he quotes Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. By the resurrection, it was publicly and powerfully revealed that Jesus is indeed the Son of God in every sense of the word, including being like the kings of David's line. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate son of David, the real anointed ruler. David and Solomon and their rule over God's people were but pictures and types of this promised anointed one. So Jesus, he is the fulfillment of God's promises to David and Solomon. He is the true king to rule over God's kingdom on earth. To uh, redeem people to himself, those who are in the grip of the evil one, all nations in the grip of the evil one. And he's come to redeem them, that people of all nations might belong not to Satan's kingdom, but to Jesus' kingdom. When Jesus said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, he wasn't talking about himself as God. He's talking to, talking to us. He was talking about his messianic kingship. And he commanded his servants to go out then in all the world as a result of what he had done at Calvary, to go all, to all the world and to preach the gospel to all nations. So this is the kingdom, this is the rule that is associated with Jesus and his victory over the devil. This is the kingdom of which we pray when we call out, your kingdom come. What the devil wanted to give him if he bowed down and worship him, Jesus has received from God the Father as a result of his atoning death on the cross. He's done it the right way, the costly way. It was on the cross that the devil was judged, as Jesus said he would be. Now is the prince of this world judged. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. John chapter 12. By the cross, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his anointed. And so, God's word states that Jesus, as messianic king, will reign till all his enemies are under his feet. And when, at Jesus' second coming, all his enemies are subdued, then the Messiah will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, so that the triune God might be all in all. No more opposition. End. So, Jesus, you notice here, is given the promise of worldwide rule, which, he, which he's getting. We are part of this worldwide rule as we meet here, aren't we? We're, we're part of it, but it's big. It's tremendous. It's worldwide. I do thank God for it. And I always think on a Sunday morning, there have been people 
while I was still sleeping, there were people rising in New Zealand and uh, the South Pacific there to praise God's name. And then you come over into the Far East and, and then uh, Russia and uh, China, uh, Middle East, and through to Europe and Africa. And then there they are. They're going on tonight in uh, Americas, South and North and Canada. I don't know whether it's Hawaii is the end of the line, but there we are, somewhere around there. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? All around the world, people praising our God tonight. We belong to something big. And uh, so Jesus uh, was promised worldwide possession of the nations. And uh, Jesus asked what Jesus asked for, he got as a result of his perfect life and atoning death. He saw the labor of his soul and was satisfied. He endured the cross, despising the shame, in order to see this joyful result. This kingly rule will, in the end, not only mean the salvation of God's people, but the destruction of those who remain stubbornly opposed to him. The opposition might seem strong and invincible, but as a result of the victory at Calvary, all rebellion will be removed from God's creation. Make no mistake about that. Jesus, the Anointed One, is coming again in power and great glory. And that day of ultimate redemption and salvation for God's people will be the end of all rebellion to God's rule. Ultimate victory belongs to King Jesus, the Anointed One. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. There is Jesus with his people. There's the lamb with 144,000 on Mount Zion as Revelation chapter 14 verse 1 tells you. You see, you've got it all through the Bible. It's wonderful, the unity of the scriptures. And uh, those that are enemies, well, that's also mentioned in Revelation. If we're not brought low under the gospel preaching, we shall be brought low through other means to experience the wrath of God. So many of our novels are based, of course, on this principle that good wins in the end. And uh, yes, it does, because God is on the throne, you see. All the devilish opposition we see that looks so overwhelming, all-powerful, Finally, collapse. Victory over the devil was won at the cross. Remember that. And all the evil we see are the last rebellious gasps, if you like, before it's gone forever. Wonderful. Right. End verses 10 to 12. A word of warning and of hope. It's the glorious gospel that we find here in these final verses. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the son lest he be angry. Yes, there's a gracious call here to the representatives of the nations who have been plotting against the Lord and his anointed comes this summons to serve the Lord. These rulers, they represent their people, so the message is for all rebels. Wherever they are found on the earth, they're urged to submit to God, to reverently serve 
him. And far from thinking this is bondage, they're exhorted to bow before the living God and realize that this, after all, is, is perfect freedom because this is what they were created for. Created to uh, serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Created to enjoy him forever. There's no service like it. God made us to bring him honor and to enjoy him. And that's what all who submit to the Lord find. Psalm 100 verse 2. Serve him. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with a song. But that rejoicing is not irreverent. It's with trembling. God is still God. He's not our chum. He's still the awesome God. Yes, he's our heavenly father. But he's not our chum. And so we are to serve him with trembling. Fear God. Be careful to give him the respect that is due to his holy name. How do we come to serve this almighty, awesome Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling? Well, it's by submitting to his anointed King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son. For modern trans, some modern, particularly non-evangelical modern translations made hard weather of this verse because the word... Uh, uh, son is here in the Aramaic instead of in the, in the Hebrew. And so they've gone to all lengths to get rid of it. But uh, no reason at all, very good reason, because remember, it's speaking to the nations who know their Aramaic, you see, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, he's bringing all the nations in here. Uh, kiss the son. Yes, in the old days, I don't know whether they still do it today, but when somebody comes from an audience with the queen or the king, the royal figure holds out the hand and they kiss the hand in submission. We come and bow before King Jesus. We acknowledge him. He is our Lord and our Saviour. When Thomas saw him and knew it was the Saviour, my Lord and my God, Oh, he didn't want to, didn't want to be bothered and feeling any hands and feet then. No, bow before him in adoration. Well, there we are, dear friends. We are called to humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive him. If you've never done it before, young people here, if you've never done it before, do so, even tonight. Humble yourself. Ask the Lord to forgive you your sins and to make all things new in your little lives. This is serious, because everyone who is not a believer has the wrath of God hanging over them. And we are to be wise, be instructed. It's a call to stop in our tracks, to think, to realize that we are in this rebellious state against the living God who has made us for himself, and gives us the very breath we breathe and for whom we cannot escape. We cannot escape from him. He'll catch up with us one way or the other. 
So we are called to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ when the opportunity is there. Come today. He's alive for us today. And we're alive to call upon him today. So do that if you've never done it before. And the psalm closes on this wonderful note. The whole psalm, a great encouragement and comfort to believers, especially in times of increasing opposition to the gospel. But I think this last verse is icing on the cake, as it were. What a blessed, happy, privileged position it is to be in for all those who put their trust in the Lord. You could translate it, Oh, how fortunate are all those who seek refuge in him. Such people are safe for time and for eternity. Remember the second hymn this morning, safe. Safe for time and safe for eternity. What comfort, what assurance, certain hope this is. And it's all because of the Great King, the Almighty God, who has given us his Son, Jesus Christ, to be the King of his people. See my King on my holy hill of Zion with all my people all gathered there. That's what we're looking forward to. Grand and glorious day when the Welsh and the English and the Scottish and the Irish and all the nations of the world together, worshipping the Lamb and the Father. Oh, that's our hope. I hope he's your hope and confidence this evening. Trust him in life and death, whatever circumstances we'll go through. He's worth it.